Part three, chapter two of Life and Lillian Gish. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Carolyn Lilliard. Life and Lillian Gish by Albert Bigelow Payne. Part three, chapter two The White Sister. The story of the White Sister is not an unusual one. A beautiful young girl, defrauded of her fortune, pledges her love to a young army officer, who almost immediately goes to Africa, whence presently comes the news that he has been massacred with a detachment of his men. Broken-hearted but clinging to hope, the bereaved girl becomes a lay sister in a Catholic institution, a hospital, and after long years of waiting, takes the vows of the order, becomes a nun. Of course, at once, the soldier, who all these years had been a caged prisoner, returns, sees her, demands that the church give her up, even kidnaps her, temporarily in the belief that she will require her freedom at the hands of the Pope. In the book, he gets her as a reward for unexampled bravery in a catastrophe. In the picture, he is even braver, but has to rely on heaven for his reward, for Angela, Lillian, remains true to her vows, and in any case, Giovanni, Coleman, does not survive the catastrophe. The tragic ending was thought better for the picture, with something more spectacular than a mere explosion of a powder magazine for the catastrophe. Henry King was for a flood— robert hawes art director for a volcanic eruption in the end they had both also an earthquake to start the flood of course that meant changing the scene of the story it was too costly even for a motion picture magnet to bring vesuvius to rome so they moved rome to vesuvius that is to say, they moved Angela's convent to a town on the slopes above naples where the volcano would be handy a laboratory, an important feature in the picture, they likewise built on the Vesuvian slope, but as Vesuvius could not be counted on to erupt on schedule, Haas built a miniature and dependable volcano in the studio. We worked very late, Lillian remembers, and I can still see Bob Haas, those nights when we were all tired out, sticking his head from the crater of his pet property with some inane remark that would set us all off in a gale of wild laughter. During our stay in Naples, I was given a room in the Excelsior Hotel, with a window that looked out directly on Vesuvius. At that time of year, the sun seemed to rise from the crater. It was a room that Ducey had once occupied. In Rome, our studio was on the outskirts. From my dressing room, I could see the dome of St. Peter's in the distance. We ate our luncheon in a little detached house, where the caretaker and his wife lived. The room was small, and all gathered round one table. Simple food, spaghetti, sardines, cheese, and always red wine with water. And then the Italian bread! A sandwich of Italian bread and sardines, with red Italian wine. Nothing is better than that! We named our projection room, the catacombs, for it was kind of cave and had the same atmosphere. Our studio being small, we occupied every corner of it. Soon after the first of the year, they began shooting the picture. They had trouble at the start getting extras and workmen. 
Italians will not drop what they are doing and come to a stranger, even at double price. Finally, when they decided that the picture makers were reliable and sane, they came in droves and remained. One day, Count and Countess Carlo Frasso, she had been American, came out to see the work. It was where Giovanni is going to war. The lovers embrace, and Angela weeps. The Count and Countess expressed surprise that Angela shed real tears. They did not know that tears could be turned on in that way. She was invited to their palazzo to dine. A duke of the royal house was there, a large, handsome man, to whom the ladies made beautiful curtsies after the custom of the court. The room was enormous, with many ambassadors in their splendid uniforms. Lillian was much impressed by the height and grace and physical beauty of the upper-class Italians. Through Cardinal Bonzano, they secured the assistance of the church. Priests even came to the studio to supervise the scenes, to see that no mistakes were made in the appointments and ceremonies. The company was given an audience with the Pope, and Lillian saw him several times afterwards. All the things she wore in her part, he blessed. Lillian loved Rome and tried to enter into the spirit of the people and the church for the sake of her part. She studied Italian and little by little learned to speak and understand pretty well. She wanted to think and feel as Angela would think and feel, to know Rome as Angela would have known it, its ancient monuments, its social aspects, its religious ceremonies, its feast days. Rome at Easter time the sancta scala where one ascends all the steps on one's knees st paul's on good friday for the gregorian chants st peter's on easter morning where all the world goes by the spirit of the church of rome of italy were in these and in the marketplaces the streets the beggars everywhere henry king got up his flood at tivoli near rome there is a fall there, and in some way the engineers held the water until the moment when the volcano and the earthquake were supposed to cause a dam to break and flood the little city that was on the slopes of Vesuvius. The eruption we made at the little town of Rocca di Papa above Rome. They took up great airplane propellers to make the wind. Before an eruption, there comes a great hush. Then wind with lightning, then the earthquake. The people of the village were engaged to be the panic-stricken crowd. They had no need of stage direction. When the big propellers started, they were frightened enough without being told. The wind those propellers made was terrific. The place became a bedlam of swirling dust and frantic people. Dust flew that had not been moved for five hundred years. A real eruption could hardly have frightened them worse. That day and the next were killing days for me, Lillian remembered. From 8.30 in the morning, in the sun and dust, making scenes and bits that were part of the great eruption, then back to the studio, and after a bath, makeup, and costume, the great scene where Angela takes the veil. I should have been in perfect condition for that scene, and I was in about the worst possible. We kept at it steadily through the night, until 9.30 next morning, 25 hours at a stretch without sleep. Then I was allowed two hours and a half of rest. 
I slept some of it, but right away jumped into work again, and kept at it until eleven that night, when I was put into an automobile with Mrs. Cratch and motored to Florence, stopping for a brief rest at Orvetio. At Florence I saw the studio costumes, sets, etc., that had been partly arranged for to be used in Romola, which we were going to do the following winter. Nobody works harder than motion picture players in the heat and glare of blazing lights in all kinds of weather, twelve, fifteen, twenty-four hours on end. From Florence to Paris and to Cherbourg. On the ship, I got into a cabinet bath and then went to bed. I did not know when we sailed. I slept the clock twice around without a break. I started with a terrible cold, but the bath and the rest cured it. We had begun the White Sister in November, and it was now June. In New York, King and I worked at the cutting all through the summer until the last of August, getting twelve reels ready for the big theaters. At the same time, we were putting Romola into shape to picture. King presently went back to Italy to begin work on it, while I remained to cut the White Sister down to nine reels for the road, a difficult and anxious job. The White Sister made its first appearance, world's premiere, at the 44th Street Theater, New York City, Wednesday evening, September 5, 1923. There was a special souvenir program tied with a blue cord, with Lillian's picture on the outside, and a message from Doug and Mary within. The crowd poured in. Behind the curtain, on a soapbox, Lillian and Dorothy anxiously waited the public verdict. Lillian wore a new ivory velvet dress, ordered for the occasion. She had been going to wear one of her old gowns, but Dorothy and the others had shamed her into buying a new one. She was certain to be called on, they said, and what a disgrace to appear at less than one's best. So the new gown had been made on short notice, and now draped itself around the soapbox, while the reels that told the story of Angela and Giovanni unwound to lovely music, and their figures flickered silently across the screen. Two sisters, that twenty years before, night after night, had waited much in the same way to go on in their childish parts. Did they remember that? Probably not. They were too anxious, too expectant, and when presently the applause came roaring through to them, they hugged each other, for it seemed to mean success. It was a long waiting, nearly two hours, when it was over at last, and there came a great final uproar. Lillian was summoned, and in the glory of her ivory velvet, appeared before the curtain, and when the deafening burst of greeting had subsided, made a brief speech, and the great first night was at an end. She had arranged a small supper at her apartment in the Hotel Vanderbilt, just the family. A telegram from Mrs. Gish, by this time in California, had come. Mother wishes you all success possible in your new picture. I know that you will be sweet and dear in it. Her health was much better. She would go with them to Florence for Romola. Probably the two years or more of Lillian's Italian picture episode would not show another night as happy as that one. 
the white sister proved an undeniable success lillian's ethereal presentation of her part would ensure that and even when some random critic raised his voice in timid protest as to the artistic structure of the edifice his accents were drowned in the chorus of applause the picture was unique it had been made with the sanction and aid of the church the vatican had fixed upon it its seal of approval that settled that now that seven years and a day have gone by one seeing the white sister again as the writer of these chapters has seen it rather recently may perhaps speak of it with a steadier pulse there could be no question as to lillian's part in it at more than one moment in the sequence she rose to great heights and at no time was her performance less than distinguished at one instant it is where she is prostrated by the shock of giovanni's reported death the spasmodic twitching of her cheek the result of long rehearsal was hardly less than miraculous as a whole however she had done better work than in the white sister in broken blossoms for instance and she has done immeasurably better work since in la boheme in the scarlet letter in wind in her part of helena in Chekhov's Uncle Vanya, her stage play of 1930. Also, a good deal of her personality was lost in The White Sister, had become mere costume. Of all people, Lillian is the last to be standardized by uniform. The picture itself was hardly a structural triumph. Briefly, its beginning and its middle seem not very logical, its ending hopelessly disproportionate a volcanic eruption an earthquake and a flood for no better reason when all is said than to kill a poor soldier who had already spent five years shut up in a rabbit hutch nothing he had done warranted his being drowned like a rat in a flooded ditch if all of us who have been tempted to kidnap the woman we loved in or out of the church deserve drowning then it's high time to invite a return engagement of Noah's flood. If Ronnie Coleman, Giovanni, I mean, had perforce to renounce his heart's desire, surely a simpler and less unbeautiful way than that might have been invented. A volcano, an earthquake, and a flood, such a rumpus, only to bring death and redemption to one unhappy soldier." To have let him ride or sail out of the picture, going back to Africa, would have been infinitely less expensive, and even more heartbreaking, assuming that this was what the picture intended to be. At any rate, it caused the shedding of many tears. In Germany, it was immensely popular. In no other land are tears such a luxury. It had been Lillian's wish to dedicate the picture to the sisters of the Ursuline Academy in St. Louis, her old school, and she hoped to go back there and run it for them, but was never able to carry out this purpose. From the director of entertainments at Sing Sing Prison, Lillian received an invitation to appear before the prisoners on the occasion of a showing, not of the new picture, but of Broken Blossoms, which, it appears, had strangely enough become their favorite picture, for five years had been voted as such. She hesitated. She thought it could only be a sad occasion, 
but she could not refuse. A day was arranged, and she made the beautiful drive through the free air and sunshine to a community where the outer scene was limited to prison walls. She was met by the warden and one other official. Then they left her, and the prisoners were assembled. She found herself alone with them. At first it was strange, uncanny, then delightful. All were so courteous and interested. After the picture was shown, she talked to them. She told them how the play was made. They regarded her with deep attention, hanging eagerly on every word. When she had finished, they gathered about her. One among them had been a friend of Thomas Burke, who wrote the story. By the time she was ready to go, she had forgotten they were prisoners, and at the door asked her escort, "'Aren't you coming with me?' He smiled a faint, sad smile. "'Only so far, Miss Gish, and no farther.' Speaking of it, she said, "'I believe criminals are only mentally and morally ill.' The state employs judges to send them to prison. Why not employ doctors to diagnose and treat them? End of Part 3, Chapter 2